0: Welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland, and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder, and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlockery. Today joining me is Ian Craighead. Ian is a GP in Dingwall, having moved there from Orkney originally. He's worked overseas in Nepal and in that far-flung place of England. He's a basics responder and works with the PICT, the pre-hospital immediate care and trauma team based in Inverness. And he's also the team doctor for Ross County Football Club. Although well, I guess that's on hold at the moment with Covid. So today he's come on to chat to us about the logistics of responding for basics and how to get involved. Welcome Ian, many thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you David, it's good to be speaking to
0: you. So I guess the first question is how did you get started? What sort of lured you into this?
1: I guess my first thoughts about becoming involved in pre-hospital care go right back to working in West Oxfordshire. I recall being a, a young GP and being called to see a patient who'd fallen off the roof of Thatch Cottage. And I remember the patient was sitting on the ground and just mumbling. With his head between his legs, and I called an ambulance, but I had no equipment with me. And and I looked at him, and I thought, surely he'll get better, and surely it's not that bad. And the paramedic arrived after a short time, eyeballed him, and said, "Look, doc, this is a really serious situation. I think he's really hurt." And that realization that that paramedic could see and assess the situation so accurately made me feel quite inadequate. And the patient sadly died of his head injury, and I, the practice was uh, gifted money from his funeral, and I used that money to go on a basics course and actually train in pre-hospital care and equip myself. So it was a hard learning, but that's what spurred me on to start working in pre-hospital care. I did various jobs and then found myself in Orkney working with Kirsty Cole, who is a basics trainer. And Kirsty was really keen to set up a formal system of responding on the island. And so we together set up a basics scheme in Orkney, which was a really supportive environment to begin with, a small ambulance service and a team who were keen to help us out and to guide us in our early days.
0: Sounds like a great place to start. I guess the sort of the attraction of pre-hospital care means that, that there are lots of people who have a vague interest in it. What are the sort of downsides about you know, getting started? What, what are the things that, that you'd encourage people to think about before they pile in all guns blazing?
1: Yeah, I think you need the time to respond or the, the time and the availability. If you have young children, it's very hard to just drop everything and go. And the point that I started responding was the point when the children were at secondary school. So you could leave them unattended. So that's important. It takes patience. There's a delay in getting on a basics course. There are delays in, understandable delays in getting your kit together. There's time to be taken to speak and get to know the local ambulance service. And I would really strongly recommend doing that. And so the whole process does take time. And I think it's important just to take that time prepare well and when you commit to it to to stick with it because certainly when you look at the financial commitment that the Sandpiper trust make it's it's a very significant one and we need to honor that and be available for a significant period of time if we become responders
0: yeah I, it's always sort of easy to say that things will work and not actually quite understand the burden that's on it and I guess it's quite difficult if you you know if your day job is Becoming more and more stressful, you you've got more things that actually pay the wages. Trying to carve out a space for responding is is not always easy.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Dave. I think that the interruptions in your day job can make it impossible. And certainly within general practice, when you have booked appointments and quite a tight schedule, leaving suddenly in the middle of it has caused pressures And at the moment, what I do is I sign on just at the point when I've finished my consultations at the end of the afternoon and stay signed on as late into the evening. And I can sign on on a Friday night and sign off again on a Monday morning and have the weekends available. So that works, but I don't generally respond during the daytime, although the local ambulance service will sometimes phone if something big happens in the locality looking for assistance. And that's absolutely understandable. But it it is hard and you can't constantly be interrupted during the working day in most cases.
0: It's interesting you mentioned the sort of control room there. I've certainly found that I've discovered over the time the, the characters of controllers and started to build up a bit of a relationship with them. And I found that really useful as I got going.
1: I I was at an early stage, had the opportunity to go to the control room in Inverness and see the job that they do. And it's a phenomenally complicated job that they do well. And I'm I'm full of admiration for the dispatchers and for the 999 call handlers who have to make uh, critical decisions within a very short space of time. And I think one of the pieces of advice, I should say, is, is bear with the controllers because they have to make snap decisions. Sometimes those decisions, are good and sometimes those decisions turn out to be the situation you find yourself in is different to the one you were sent on and just patience is quite important when you're dealing with the control room because they make decisions based on poor information very often because patients are and their relatives are not always good at giving clear concise details of an incident and the details often only become clear when you arrive
0: and you mentioned before getting to know your local crews. I certainly find it invaluable just to to be able to kind of put a name to folk as you arrive. Any any other relationships that you'd suggest cultivating early on?
1: You touched on getting to know people's names. I think paramedics and technicians, they really appreciate if you know their names. And it's really helpful, I think, if they're involved in a case and you subsequently find out more about what happens to the patient to feedback that information to them. But they really appreciate being known by their names and showing a respect for the profession that they represent. I think it's helpful if you can spend time with them. I, I find sometimes the time that's most valuable is time spent clearing up after an, an incident. Perhaps it's an unsuccessful out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and there's a lot of clearing up to do. Perhaps the patient needs to be lifted back into bed, there's all the charts to be gathered up and all the clinical waste. And if you stay and you help, then you end up talking and building relationships. And sometimes you end up traveling with crews and if you can help them clean up and clear the vehicle up, then I think that's valuable time and valuable in relationship building. I think the fire service are another group who it's good to know or be recognized. Sometimes there are local exercises between the ambulance crews and the fire crews. And if you get the opportunity to participate in drills and exercises, And I think that's a really helpful opportunity to grasp it, I would suggest.
0: So once you're sort of up and running and you're set up and you've got all your Sandpiper kit, what are the kind of key things that you found really useful in terms of just day-to-day responding?
1: I think know your kit. Listening to your podcast with Stephen Hearns, he talked about drilling and drilling, thinking out likely scenarios and drilling for those scenarios. And I think that's really good advice. So when I first got my bags, I would pack them and then I would think, right, okay, if I'm the first on scene and it's a cardiac arrest and there's no one to help me, how would I open my bags? How would I lay out my bags and how should my bags be packed in order that I can do the most in the shortest time? I think that's really, really helpful. So making sure that your defibrillator is close by and your airway breathing kit is probably all in the same bag is really helpful. You can't do everything on your own, but if you can get the defibrillator quickly applied and clarify whether you've got a shockable rhythm, that's really helpful. And then if you can subsequently move on and manage the airway, again, just by staying perhaps at the patient's head with your kit on the left and on the right. It's really helpful. So, drilling and checking, thinking through the scenarios and packing your kit accordingly, and just taking time to learn from jobs and to make amendments and adjustments to your kit as you see in experienced cases.
0: I guess it's one of those things, as doctors, we're often not the greatest about really being in and amongst the kit, whereas the responders from the sort of paramedic and nursing backgrounds. <laughs> do a little bit more in terms of hands-on with kit day-to-day and probably better drilled at, at looking after stuff and that kind of kit husbandry
1: i think you're absolutely right there's a discipline in looking after the kit in checking expiry dates of drugs and the familiarity of doing the check leads you to understand how your kit is packed in a much better way so i use the I, on the last day of the month i take my kit apart and look at it all, check all the expiry dates, go through all the drugs, and replace anything that needs to be replaced, but do it on a monthly basis. And I think that's essential for getting drug expiry dates and fixing that, but it's also good for kit
0: familiarity. What's your feel for the sort of case mix? I certainly thought originally that I was going to be doing nothing but trauma, and it's not always Mm. been the case.
1: Yeah, I set out with a similar expectation. But actually, I find 60 to 70% of the cases are medical cases. So as a GP, that's fine. I feel comfortable in that role. But yeah, like you, I was surprised that there wasn't more trauma. But very often, it's medical. It does depend where you live. In in Orkney, the the medical cases made up a, a high proportion. And that was partly because... At the time I was responding, there was only a single ambulance in the evenings and at weekends. So if the ambulance was out, the ambulance was out. And if a call had been triaged to 999, they would ask us to attend and that was fine. So the proportion of medical cases was higher. Now I I live close to the A9, so there are more road traffic accidents. So a greater proportion of those cases are trauma cases, so it does depend where you live and the situation with your ambulance service.
0: Okay, I'm going to get you to sort of walk me through a case from getting that initial phone call from control and just kind of pick out things that you think are important as we go.
1: So at the moment I would receive calls by mobile phone, so you'd get a call from the control room asking if you were available to attend. So once you've confirmed your availability, they'll give you a, a short précis of the case as they understand it. And they'll send the information through to a transponder. It's a smart mobile phone with software on it that gives you clinical information about the patient. And it gives you information about the location and uses a GPS system to guide you to the site of the accident or the incident. So you then need to get in your car. I'm a doctor, so I can use a green light, which can be helpful. It doesn't allow you to break any road traffic laws. You have to stay within the law, but it does allow you to get out of junctions sometimes where there's traffic congestion, people will give way to you. And it's also a useful marker if you arrive early on scene as to who you are and what you're doing there. So you need to drive carefully. It's easy to Be so pumped up with adrenaline that your driving can become risky. So, you must maintain a calmness and a concentration on your driving. You've got to get there safely because if you have an accident, it's going to take a very long time for anyone to come to your aid if there is another accident going on. So, drive carefully. When you arrive at a scene, you've got to just approach the scene slowly and with care. A serious road accident is. A scene of crime potentially, and will be investigated by the police. over and above that, it, it may well be unsafe, particularly if you're there early. So think very carefully about how you approach the scene. Park yourself off the road if you can. park yourself well away from the accident scene if you can, and so that you're not in any danger, and ensure that you don't block the arrival of the fire service and police and ambulance vehicles. So taking time to put your PPE on is important. I tend to do it before I get into the car. When you arrive on a scene, particularly if you're first there, there's an expectation that people have that you'll spring into action immediately. If you stop and you start putting your boots on and you start putting your trousers and your jacket on, it causes frustration. So probably it's best to dress before you get in the car. But make sure your PPE is appropriate. And then just take time just to think and look at the scene. Safety is paramount and just trying to get an overview of the scene. If you're not first there, speak to the police who will be on the outer cordon and just ask them where you should park. And they'll give you a description of the scene and tell you where to park. If everyone is there, the fire officer would be the next person. And they'll usually direct you to the... Ambulance crews and look for the paramedic who is in charge and speak to them and ask them. And my opening gambit is always, you know, what can I do to help you? So you're there to try and supplement the service that they provide and to be their help and their aid. So, what can I do to help is is certainly the opening gambit that, that I would advise using.
0: That's really interesting. It sort of sets up the tone of everything that happens from that point onwards. I think particularly with crews that you've not worked with before, uh, there's often a degree of confusion about who you are and and what you're doing there.
1: Most definitely. I think I introduce myself by my first name. I say, I'm Ian. I'm a doctor with Basics Scotland. So yeah, so I, I certainly would seek to orientate them as to who I am, but I wouldn't seek to To big myself up or to give them an expectation that I come with special powers. So, you know, I think taking a a humble attitude and, uh, you know, what can I do to help? Attitude is really quite important. Paramedics nowadays are are so well trained that bringing more to the scene than they can offer is actually quite hard. Their training and their equipment and their skill set is high. And sometimes you become a helpful extra pair of hands rather than necessarily enhancing the service that is there. So I think introductions are, are very important in how you set the scene.
0: The other thing I've been trying to get myself in the habit of doing is giving a little bit of an update back to control before I get stuck in amongst the nitty gritty. Mostly because I find that my, my attention gets diverted onto the, the interesting squishy bits and away from the ball scene picture.
1: Uh, yeah, that's good advice. It's advice perhaps that I need to take rather than to give. I've recently been given a, an airwave radio. W- without an airwave radio, speaking to control, if you're using your telephone, is practically quite hard to do, because the telephone number that we have, certainly for the AR desk in North Queensferry, isn't answered immediately. And you may not have the details for the local control room. So. Having an airwave radio actually makes that an easy process because you can simply put a call back in. But I haven't been in the habit of doing that except when there are ambulance crews on the scene who can use the callback facility on their radio. I think what's terribly important in our local area is feeding back to the receiving hospital, what they can expect. Certainly, Rigmore Hospital are easy to contact and They really appreciate the heads up on what's coming their way. And in particular, they need time to assemble a trauma team if the patient requires it. And the more advanced warning that you can give of that, the better.
0: So our patient has disappeared off to hospital and the ambulance crew have got them packaged up and taken away to A&E. As a responder, that sort of leaves you almost a little bit swinging in the breeze. What are your tips for kind of managing that come down after a job?
1: I think looking to your kit and seeing what's been depleted from your kit sometimes you can immediately replace what you've used by asking the ambulance crews and sometimes you actually need to stop and can no longer respond because you've lost critical bits of kit that need to be replaced before you can sign on again. So thinking about the kit is a helpful mechanical way of processing a case. I tend to go home and write up the case. So, it, that's an interesting process, because I often leave the scene thinking, yeah, that was, I, did, I did okay, that, that, was, that was quite a good job. And as I sit down and I think about the case, I start to have some doubts about how I've performed, and I start to realize that there are things that I might have done that I didn't do, things that I did do that I perhaps shouldn't have done, and it tends to raise quite a few questions in my head, so the more traumatic the case, the more questions I tend to have. So it's important, I think, to have a, a buddying system wherever you work. Basics has a network of responders who are regional reps. So I'm lucky enough to have Brian Fitzsimons up in Tain. And if I've been to a difficult job or I have a question, I will often phone up Brian and ask him. Within the picked team within the Highland area, we have a, a duty on-call, picked advisor, it's called the decision support team, and so you can phone here the decision support team person, but if you were working in another area of the country, then I think it's important to have a a go-to person so that you can talk about cases. In years gone by, I've used the clinical governance meetings that SpaceX host on a quarterly basis as a way of presenting cases. It's It's a supportive environment, it's helpful for learning, And I find that a really useful outlet for discussing and almost winding down debriefing from cases. So certainly, I think you've touched on an important area.
0: Fantastic. So one of the things we've been getting all of the guys that we have on to discuss here is to give some top tips for folk who are maybe thinking about responding or just starting in that responding process. So for the the doctors, the nurses, and the paramedics who are going to become the basics responders, what would you suggest as your kind of takeaways for them?
1: I I guess uh, the number one has to be know your kit inside out and just understand how it's all put together, how you can quickly access pieces of equipment in the dark, in the rain, outside, in really small houses and tight spaces. Know your kit inside out would be my number one. My second point would be get to know and work closely with your ambulance colleagues. Respect their professionalism, get to know them by name and help even the clearing up tasks. Just take opportunities to get to know and work closely with your ambulance colleagues. And I guess the third thing I would say is stick with it. Stick with it in the long term. You'll have good calls, you'll have less good calls, but just be patient and stick with it. And take time to gain an experience. And overall, over time, I think you'll find it's one of the most rewarding things that you could do.
0: And that's fantastic. Really sort of sage, sensible advice. And hopefully that will inspire some folk to look at responding with basics in the future. Many thanks for coming on and chatting to us.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.